archives of this program can be found at our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, and on the KZYX website called Jukebox. Good day, dear friends and gentle listeners. Today, we're going to have a very, very interesting interview with two gentlemen who were just featured on a film at the Mendocino International Film Festival. The film was called The Sunshine Makers. Our guest today will be Tim Scully. Maybe some of you remember him from many, many years ago. Actually, it's close to 50 years ago now. Tim Scully with Nick Sand produced Orange Sunshine, perhaps the most widely distributed LSD on the planet. Along with Tim today will be Michael Randall. Michael Randall, one of the co-founders of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Some of you may remember the Brotherhood of Eternal Love from 50 years ago. They were the group that was most famous, perhaps, for connecting with the weather underground and helping Dr. Timothy Leary escape from federal prison, where he then went on to meet up with Eldridge Cleaver in Algeria. Stay tuned for this exciting interview. I think you're going to enjoy it. But first, a few news and notes in psychology and medicine. What's in the news right now? Well, of course, the election is in the news. Uh, the Democratic uh, primaries going still going on, and we've got uh, Clinton and Sanders here in California going at it. Sanders, talking about what I've been talking about for at least 10 years on the air, and that is the socioeconomic stratification that's been going on in this country now for at least 30 years, the most severe socioeconomic stratification, perhaps in the history of the country. What that means, in effect, is that the money is being sucked up into the top one-tenth of one percent. But remember, one-tenth of one percent of 330 million people is still a very large number. Ten percent of 330 million is 33 million. One percent is 3.3. That means we've got 330,000 approximately who are in that one-tenth of one percent. Why? Why, you may ask, is all the money going to the top? Is it because people are so greedy? Is it because they want to take over and have more power and money? Or perhaps other factors are involved? My own opinion is that it's an intrinsic aspect of the system by which we live. We live in a system that's basically the Monopoly game. Remember when you played Monopoly? You play Monopoly for an afternoon or an evening or perhaps a whole weekend. At a certain point, one or two people at the table own everything and everybody else is broke. Why is that? Because if you get Boardwalk and Park Place, if you get enough ownership everybody else eventually is going to become indebted to you, whether you're the nicest person or whether you're the most greedy person on the planet. And that is the system by which we live. And until we change that system, the money is going to continue being sucked up to the top, and people in the middle and the bottom are going to be having a harder and harder time. What can we do about it? We can vote about it. What else can we do about it? We can be really wonderful to each other in our neighborhoods and do everything possible we can to help one another 
in our little communities, help one another with food, help one another with building, help one another with good vibrations, basically help and be good neighbors. That we can do. That we can do. So the politics in the news, what else in the news? Always drugs in the news. Medicine is going to be the topic of our interview today, psychedelic medicine, but drugs are in the news because this opioid epidemic is really going right through the country with middle-class America. You've heard me talk about it before. You'll excuse me for talking about it until you're bored by it, but it is very dangerous. And many of you out there are taking OxyContin, are taking Hydrocordone, are taking Norco, and this is a serious warning. This isn't the nonsense warning. That's one of the problems that we have in this country, that our, our government has allowed itself to be so misguided by misinformation, misinformation about marijuana, misinformation about LSD. You're going to hear about that today. So much misinformation. It's like mis misinformation that we got when I was a little boy about masturbation, and we were told that if you did that, you were going to go to purgatory in a handbasket or maybe hair would grow on the palm of your hands. Misinformation. So what happens when you get a lot of misinformation, people know it, then they don't trust the government. Then when there's real information that's honest information, you don't know whether to trust it or not. Well, in my professional opinion, you can trust the information about OxyContin and, uh, and, and hydrocordone and Norco and the various other opioids. They are dangerous. Why? Because if you take them for even a couple of weeks on a regular basis, you're going to go into a black hole of depression that's going to be pretty miserable, in addition to the fact that you're going to get very constipated. The constipation you can deal with by taking various other things, but the depression is very negative. Tolerances do build up. Folks, if you know someone who's taking this stuff, give them the warning. There are other painkillers out there or pain reducers, such as marijuana, and we have 26 states in the union right now that have medicinal marijuana laws. I think it's 26, it might be 24. Medicinal marijuana laws, and you can get a whole, get a prescription, perhaps try marijuana for your pain. Talk to your physician about other forms of pain reduction. These warnings are real. This isn't misinformation from your government. What else in the drug world is going on? Well, there's a groundbreaking study you may have heard about with regard to LSD. After 50 years of suppression of research, there is some research being allowed, and there is now a groundbreaking study which shows the actual brain of people who took a placebo, people who took 75 micrograms of LSD. I'll tell you about what a microgram is a little later. And the study shows th through MRIs and a new technique called magnetoencephalography actually what the brain looks like under the influence of 75 micrograms of LSD. And what they're showing that happens is that the LSD reduces blood flow to the part of the brain that we call ego and increases blood flow to parts of the brain that we've never used before. This is a groundbreaking study. We're going to be getting a lot more information coming down the pike, so stay tuned in for that. Coming back to what I said before about misinformation from the government, the latest report from the Pew study, this is the Pew people who, who they did a, um, an analysis of more than 6,000 interviews conducted in 50 states 
between August 27 and October 4th of 2015. This is an unusual sample because it's, it's maybe five to ten times larger than most of the polls. And the Pew people did interviews by cell phone and they reached a wider range of people than surveys done by landline phone or via the internet. And what did the Pew people find out? Only one in five Americans say they trust the government, always or most of the time. That means 80% of us do not trust our government. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, if the government isn't to be trusted, this is a way of saying that the American public has really awakened because many of us haven't trusted our government for the last 50 years. Well, I shouldn't say many of us. Maybe, maybe a certain percentage of us, but not 80%. But now it's up to 80%. 80% are dissatisfied with the level of service they receive from the government. 75% of our country say public officials put their own interests ahead of the nation's. What's new about that, huh? Some of you are saying, who've known this for decades. But now 80%, 75% of the country say these public officials are putting their own interests ahead of ours. Not a good thing. Time for a change. But how to affect the change? How do we go about it, folks? Look what we're left with in this election. Clinton and Trump? That's the, our choices? Oh, my word. The entire system we live with here in America has intrinsic flaws which significantly reduce the likelihood that the vast majority of us will ever be able to have equal access to certain inalienable rights granted by our creator of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the question is, for what period of time do we continue attempting to change the system from within before we follow the philosophy and example of our founding fathers, Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, and Adams, and I quote them as saying, best that we do everything possible to change our system by peaceful means, but when peaceful means fail, then is it not better to die as citizens standing straight up than to live as subjects on bended knee? Now we move on to the interview because the two men with us today took a stance 50 years ago where they stood up rather than to live on bended knee. Tim Scully is a scientist. He's a computer expert. He's a pilot. And he, along with Nick Sand, created Orange Sunshine, which arguably was the most widely distributed LSD on the planet. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Tim. Thank you. With Tim today is Michael Randall. Michael Randall is a co-founder of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. You really ought to Google both these guys, Tim Scully and Michael Randall, and find out more about them. Fifty years ago, Michael Randall was involved with the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. He'll tell you more about what that was, but many of you may remember, I, don't wanna, I shouldn't say many of you, I don't know how old you all are. Maybe it's some of you will remember that the Brotherhood connected with the Weather Underground 
and helped Timothy Leary get out of federal prison. Dr. Timothy Leary, formerly of Harvard University, who is known as the LSD guru. Welcome, Michael Randall, to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thank you. Thank you. Gentlemen, I hear tell that uh, when you got together just uh, recently for the premiere of the movie, The Sunshine Makers, that you're both in, it had been 44 years since you'd seen each other. Is that, is that true? Yeah, that's true. That's true. It was good to see Tim. Um, and we're, 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 we're lifelong friends. We're very happy to be back in touch. We love each other. I second the motion. Yes. <laughs> Tim, I want to go back a long time to the beginning of your involvement as the chemist of Orange Sunshine. Can you tell us something about how it began for you and what your motivations were? It started back in um, 1965. Uh, a childhood friend of mine was studying Oriental philosophy and turned me on to Aldous Huxley's books about psychedelics and convinced me that we ought to try to find some LSD and take it. And in April 1965, I, I, we both took LSD together, had fantastic experiences. Um, the experience for me was like getting struck by lightning. It changed the direction of my life totally. Um, and after coming down from the experience and walking out in the morning and smelling the, uh, the flowers and the freshly caught lawn, I turned to my friend Don and I said, you know, we could make a lot of this and give it away. And if we did that, it would really, it might save the world. If everybody could share this same experience of oneness with every living thing and with the universe, people wouldn't be as mean to each other and wouldn't be as destructive of the environment. So, so that's, that's where we started. So you're saying that one LSD experience in 1965 changed the course of your life and awakened an idealism towards helping humanity. How do you remember anything about what gave you the courage? I mean, you were a, you were a scientist already. You were a, a scientist in high school. Uh, you were already very involved in inventions. Uh, I've read a lot about your background at that time. Um, you're basically a, a science guy, a science nerd, if you want to use that uh, terminology. Where did you muster the courage to take something that could change the course of your life at such a young age? Do you recall? Well, um... I came from a family where um, uh, my mother was from an English Protestant background and my father was from an Irish Catholic background, so we didn't have a lot of formal religious training because there was considerable disagreement on, between the two sides of the family. Um, and, but I was curious about um, you know, the, the big questions of why we're here and what life is about. Um, I had always been taught as a, a, from a, my earliest age that what I should do in life is to somehow try to make life better 
for everyone. So you had a service orientation as you were growing up. How could you make a contribution? Right. My, my mother used to say, um, imagine you're at the end of your life looking back. You Think about how you'll feel about yourself if you do whatever it is you're about to do and choose things that will make you feel good, that make you feel that you made a positive contribution. 1965, you took a dose of LSD that changed the course of your life. Uh, Leary and Alpert were fired from Harvard for their experiments in 1963, so you already must have been aware of that. Uh, LSD became illegal the following year in 1966, the following year that you, after you took it. Do you have any idea at this time how much LSD you took in 1965 during that one experience that then you came away from that experience wanting to save the world and by, by manufacturing LSD? Uh, Don and I split one of Owsley's doses, so we took about 150 micrograms each, which I, is just, just enough um, for you to experience oneness. You know, for, uh, uh, if we'd taken much less, the experience would have been different. But that would, that was enough to do the job. Um, so, and it, and it's interesting. A, a surprising number of people, when they take at least that much LSD, have the sense that it's the most significant experience of their life. The, the, the LSD experience can carry with it a, a feeling of really intense significance. For listeners, to give you an idea of what, or maybe I'll let you gentlemen do it, of what a, a um, 150 micrograms, what, did that, what that weight, what it looks like. Uh, if, you, if you all who are listening picture one of these little packages of uh, sugar that you get in restaurants, it's either sugar or it could be stevia, it could be Splenda, uh, but you open it up and the little white powder comes out. That's, a gra that's approximately a gram. There are 28 of those grams, those little packages to an ounce. So one of those grams is 1,000 milligrams. And one milligram is 1,000 micrograms. We're, we're talking about an amount that, although you referred to it as 150 micrograms, can you actually see if you just have a, the, the actual little molecules stuck together, can you see a, a, a 150 microgram amount with the naked just eye? Barely. You can just, just ba barely with the naked eye. You can just smaller than a grain of that sugar that's in that package. Everybody listening, 150 micrograms is smaller than one grain of the sugar in that package. It's a very tiny amount of something so powerful that it changed the course of your life. So that was your beginning. Michael, I'm going to switch over to you. Please tell us something about how it began for you and how you got involved with the Brotherhood and founding the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Well, it's similar to what Tim was recounting, you know, uh, uh, an experience. And it's, and it's almost all the time, like he just said, um, an experience that changes one's life forever. You're never the same. It is an awakening. It is sudden, an epiphany beyond all imagination. And um, it just, it's, it's automatic to, you, you, to want to share this.
profound experience with everybody. Um, and it is um, a complete oneness. Um, I, I, like Tim, was raised in a, a family that uh, wasn't a real strong religious church-going family, so I hadn't been ingrained with um, religion, and uh, I suddenly kind of became a little bit religious, not in a formal way, but I, I understood that... Uh, there was a creator, and um, I was going to follow this for the rest of my life. I felt it was my responsibility to turn as many people on as we could. And Tim and I sat and had many conversations about how we would turn the world on. We had a pretty good plan, and we went a long way toward doing that very thing. Tell us something about the origins of the Brotherhood and what that was about. We were a bunch of young people. Some of us, uh, we were a little on the, tended to be a little on the wild side. There were surfers and kind of um, beatnikish, you know, before hippies, um, and um, kind of counterculture of sorts to start with. And uh, we all had this awakening and looked around at each other and said, "Man, we we got to do something," you know. I mean, the, we would go to secluded beaches or out in nature and maybe uh, 20, 30 people all have these divine experiences that uh, we felt it was our obligation to share. We then formed um, a group that we called, that we named the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and um, became a religion officially in the state of California and um, went to pursue our goal of um, trying to turn on as many souls as we could influence and touch. Approximately what year was that, Michael? Well, I, I took um, LSD in 1963 for the first time. And um, so we took it for years before it was illegal and um, had experiences where the police came. They didn't, you know, couldn't figure out what we were doing. And, um, you know, if they found marijuana, we'd go to jail, but they they, they um, found LSD in capsules, and we made them give it back to us. It wasn't illegal. They had no choice. And uh, we had one thing was led to another. It was a complete change in life. Suddenly the life that we had been living wasn't a life that we wanted anymore. The, the goals that the, that the society sets up to work hard all your life and then uh, retire to some form of comfort. And it's kind of a, it seemed like slavery when we looked at it that way. And we wanted to be free souls, and um, we set about doing that. And we're still doing it. So it's uh, you don't outgrow this experience. Our, our parents always thought we might outgrow it. <laughs> well, they found out differently. It's interesting that you use the word slavery because there are more and more people nowadays, some 50 years after you began this, who are looking at the entire system that we live in as a slave system with those I at the top. I think they're right. Yeah, I can, I can relate that you, would, that you would feel that way. Uh, and as you heard me say in the introduction uh, to the program today that 80% uh, of the country no longer trusts their government. And that's part of what was involved in your beginnings. I'm going to switch back over to you, Tim. So what happens next? You have this experience in 1965. 
you decide that you're going to share this experience with the world, and what do you do? Well, I, I set out to do library research and find out what was involved in making LSD, and I soon learned that the essential material, the ideal starting material, was lysergic acid. And it didn't take long to find out that it was very, very hard to get already. Um, so it, it, for most of 1965, what I was doing is trying to find a source for lysergic acid while, meanwhile, um, learning what I could about the chemistry of making LSD. Um, I was fortunate enough, making a long, very long story short, to eventually um, meet Owsley, who I knew had the raw material and the know-how, and he initially wasn't really interested in taking on an apprentice chemist. But not long after I met him, he fell in love with the Grateful Dead and decided not long after that that he wanted to become their sound man. And he ended up taking me on as his assistant in doing electronics work for the Grateful Dead. And I, I looked at that as an extended job interview for the real job of being his apprentice uh, in the lab. Let me just take a sidebar there, Tim, because you've been referring to Owsley, uh, and we need to let the listeners know who it is you're referring to. Who, who was Owsley Stanley, and, and what was his place, this man that you wanted to study with? Please uh, elaborate. So Owsley Stanley was one of the earliest underground chemists making LSD, he was unique in that the LSD that he made was exceptionally pure and that the doses he produced were carefully made and were powerful so that at the point when I found LSD to take in early 1965, what I was really looking for was Owsley LSD, and I was happy to be told that that's what I was getting when I bought it from a dealer. Um, so... His name became really widely known because the, one of the first grams that he sold went to a, a musician friend of his who made the mistake of telling everybody where he'd got it. And uh, Owsley didn't want to be famous, but he became instantly famous when that happened. So everyone in the scene knew that Owsley made the best LSD, including, of course, the government. But at that time when he was making it, it was legal. It wasn't illegal yet. Uh, the, the Los Angeles Narcotics Police were actually dumpster diving his trash in L.A., where he had the lab in late 1964, where he made the first DLFB that I took uh, a few months later. And uh, evidence from their investigations turned up in Senate committees in 1965 when the government was starting to consider putting restrictions on psychedelic drugs. And their testimony, uh, again, turned up in early 1966 when the Grunsky Bill was considered, which is the California law that went into effect, the first law making um, possession of LSD illegals explicitly. That was the first state law of the United States, correct? First state law, right, uh, which was passed in the spring of 66 and became effective in October. So you are now apprenticing somewhat to Owsley Stanley, and you're both working for the Grateful Dead. And while that is going on, what's Michael Randall doing? 
down in Laguna Beach, and we, um, the first acid we took was um, from Sandoz and, um, and from uh, Coke Light, a, uh, a different chemical company, and uh, it was real good. And then Osley's White Lightning, they called it, came along. That was the first um, underground chemist, uh, as Tim just said, that uh, made acid available on a widespread basis. And it was about then when, as it became illegal, all of a sudden we're not going to get any um, LSD from regular laboratories. And um, so there was there that was what we had to turn to. And Osley did make beautiful, very strong sometimes uh, doses, uh, but he made beautiful acid. And uh, we switched right into that because the availability of what we had began to take was what had just disappeared overnight almost. Yeah, by the way, Michael Randall just referenced Sandoz. Some of you may recognize that. That's the Swiss pharmaceutical firm that was in existence then. It's still in existence now. That was the firm that Dr. Albert Hoffman was working for when he first synthesized LSD in 1938 and when he first uh, took it for the first time and then elaborated on it in 1943. So you're down in... Pardon, go ahead. We knew um, later on we met a man named Michael Hollingshead, who um, isn't very well known, but he was one of the first to... DC got a letterhead somewhere, and, and he wrote a letter to Sandoz and bought a gram of crystal LSD for $250, and they just shipped it to him, and he turned on, he actually is the first person to turn Timothy Leary on, he also turned on the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and a lot of others, uh, mixing it with sugar in a way that you took a spoonful of sugar, was a dose of about 200 micrograms, the band, there was a band later called the Loving Spoonful after Michael Hollingshead's uh, thing. He, he, he's a, a major contributor that a lot of people never heard of. He lived at our ranch for a while. He was a wild man, English. For those of you listening and listening to some of these numbers, when you heard Michael Randall just now reference that, uh, that Hollingshead bought a gram of LSD, a gram of LSD is 10,000 100 microgram units, 10,000 in a gram. And remember, good deal for $250. <laughs> but remember, folks, we're talking about a gram, which is the contents of one of these little packages of sugar or Splenda that you get in a restaurant. Next time you're in a restaurant, rip it out, rip it open, put it on the table in front of you, look at what you have there. That represents, if it were LSD, 10,000 100 microgram units. That's an amazing amount in, in a gram, and that's what he got. Okay, so you're down there in Southern California, and you're connecting up. And, and meanwhile, Tim Scully, you're, you're with uh, Owsley Stanley in, uh, in Northern California, and you're working for the Grateful Dead. And then what happens next? How do you go into production, Tim Scully? Well, after traveling with the Grateful Dead and the acid test for about six months, um, Owsley was running out of money. He, <clears throat> he'd been supporting them. They weren't famous yet. Um, and uh, 
he decided that it was time to make more LSD. Uh, and so he and Melissa set up a lab in Point Richmond. And he, because we'd been working together for six months, traveling with the Grateful Dead and the Acid Test, taking LSD together every week, he decided that he could trust me to become the Sorcerer's Apprentice. So I went to work for him in the lab. And I learned the process that he was using, um, which it's a fairly complicated process. It requires a lot of care. Lysergic acid compounds are very delicate. They fall apart easily. And um, he taught me all of the various precautions you have to use at each step of the way to not waste the precious raw material and to maintain the highest possible level of purity. And he'd worked out purification methods that were effective, and he taught me those. Um, so the, the LSD that we made in Point Richmond, we then tableted up. He bought a, up until then, he started out putting his LSD in capsules. Then he discovered that you couldn't really control the dose very accurately because if you pressed harder or lighter, with the capsule half as you were filling it, you'd get more or less material in it. So he, he, he started making handmade tablets using tablet triturate boards. We did a little bit of that in Point Richmond. And then he managed using a, a, a letterhead that he uh, cooked up uh, to buy a one-punch tablet press. And we set up a tableting facility in Cotati after we closed down the Point Richmond lab and tableted little white double dome tablets which were first distributed at the human being in january 1967. owsley saw a poster that advertised the human being and it had lightning bolts on it and he said to melissa well let's call this stuff white lightning so the acid that we made in point richmond was tableted up and sold as white lightning he gave away about half of what he made in each in each batch so quite a bit of it was given away at, um, in Golden Gate Park. While that was going on, were you down in Southern California? Were you all, how were you gaining access to large amounts in order to make distribution with these guys way up north? Did you, con did you connect with Tim Scully way back then, or how did that meeting come about, Michael? Well, the meeting came about because of um, Billy Hitchcock, um, who was an heir to um, Standard Oil of Illinois. And in those days, uh, this new thing called hippies, it was almost fashionable for rich families to kind of embrace the new artistic peace and love outlaws. You know, we weren't, we weren't criminals that hurt people. We were calling for... Um, a, a new kind of revolution, a new sort of thinking. And um, so they embraced that um, to whatever degree you could. And he, I think um, Billy introduced or suggested, he, he was in Millbrook, John Griggs, um, who was also a founder of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, had been to Millbrook and met uh, where, where Timothy and everyone had a little bit of a commune, had met Billy Hitchcock. Billy Hitchcock suggested to Tim Scully that the Brotherhood would be good distributors. Uh, we were of like 
aligned, and um, our goals were the same. So it was a natural fit, and uh, it just was. Everything just went smooth. We were all happy with one another, and um, once that connection was made, that about then there was really no stopping us. We went forward in a very large way. So what we had then was a connection between a chemist scientist manufacturer and a distribution group, sort of basic business. Yep, yep, yep. It has to get out there somewhere, somehow, and, you know, sometimes it is a business deal that makes it happen. This is a business deal with profound spiritual uh, implications and profound spiritual motivation. Um, we weren't doing this to make a bunch of money. We we were trying to turn the world on, and when we made money, we we put it right back into the fulfillment of the dream that we were pursuing, and um, we're still pursuing that in our own way. I've read that at this time, over 20 million Americans have taken LSD. Um, it sounds like uh, some combination of the two of you and who else you came into contact with. We, we haven't talked much about the other uh, chemist, Nick Sand, uh, were responsible for uh, a lot of those folks. Um, what happened next with you, Tim Scully? You're, you're working with Owsley, Stanley. You're doing manufacturing. Uh, you've now uh, made a connection with... Uh, with Michael Randall's group and Griggs's group, Griggs was probably still alive then, and um, and uh, and you're distributing. Tell what happened next, Tim Scully. Well, it was a little more complicated than that. Uh, at first, Owsley was distributing through a fellow named Lavelle, and then, I mean, because I was his apprentice, I wasn't doing any distributing. I was just following orders, more or less. You know, I was learning the ropes. Um, Owsley shut down the Point Richmond lab after making about 100 grams of LSD, but he had a pound of raw material, so he still had a lot of raw material left. But he, he closed the lab shortly after LSD became illegal in California. My friend Don and I searched for a lab location outside California and found a location in Denver where we thought it would be good to set up the next lab. Owsley wasn't real anxious to set up another lab right away, so Don and I went on ahead and set it up on our own. And then when it was all ready for the essential raw material, we turned to him and said, well, it's time to bring the lysergic acid. We have a lab all set up. And um, well, making a very long story short, he eventually brought his lysergic acid, and we finished it off in Denver in 1967. He then, uh, at that point, Owsley was selling his LSD to the Hells Angels. He had met them through um, Ken Kesey, and he thought that they were wonderful. I didn't really agree, but I, you know, I, it was his LSD. I was his assistant, not in charge. Um, we closed the first Denver lab. Owsley set up a tableting facility in Arinda to tablet the acid that had been made in Denver. And unfortunately, he was busted at the end of December in 1967. Um, federal agents had managed 
to uh, follow him to the tableting facility, and I knew that that I knew he was about to get busted. I called him the night before he was busted and told him that there were swarms of feds circling my house and that he should watch out. Something bad was going to happen. And he said, "Oh, you're just paranoid." Um, so he was arrested the next morning. Um, Tim, the numbers that you're describing are astronomical. You, you say that that uh, that's Owsley Stanley had a hundred grams of LSD, that's a million hits. That's a million, a hundred microgram hits. Well, he was using more like 270 or to 300 microgram hits. He was getting about 3,600 doses to a gram. 3,600? 3,600 doses to a gram is about the way that Owsley packaged it. Um, That's slightly north of 270 micrograms. And... uh, you know, so 100 grams would have been 100 times that, uh, which is still under a million doses. It's, uh, yeah, it's 360,000. 360, right. So, so then we made another roughly 400 grams in Denver, uh, a little less than that. Uh, of that, about 100 grams was captured in the bus of the uh, Orenda lab, and the rest of it was, distri- was um, distributed through the Hells Angels. He, he gave it to them as crystal LSD, so they, at that point, I think they m- made somewhat less uh, honest doses, uh, you know, smaller doses. Uh, I set out then to try to uh, set up another lab, but I had limited resources. Uh, Owsley suggested I talk to Billy Hitchcock. Billy loaned me some money and suggested I go to London to look for raw material, and uh, I did that. I went to went to see a fellow named Charles Drews, who had been in past years selling LSD to people at Millbrook. He couldn't sell LSD anymore, but he was able to buy it, sell me lysergic acid. And I eventually hooked up with Nick Sand because I. Um, had an opportunity to buy a whole kilo of lysergic acid, and I didn't have enough money to buy it, all of it. So I split it with Nick, and uh, I knew that Nick Nick had been introduced to me by um, Owsley as a fellow psychedelic chemist, and Nick really wanted to learn how to make LSD, and he really wanted to get the raw material. He had been making quite a bit of money making STP in a lab in San Francisco that he had set up. Tell our listeners what STP is, please. So STP was the street name for a uh, mescaline analog, a, a variation on mescaline that Sasha Shulgin um, had taught Owsley about. Sasha Shulgin went on, uh, while he was working for Dow Chemical, Sasha Shulgin uh, invented a number of new psychedelics. And after he left Dow Chemical, and, and, and he went on and invented many more psychedelics, many of them slight variations on the mescaline molecule. And um, STP, he called STP DOM, and it was one of that series. And it happened to be the one that Owsley chose uh, to have me teach Nick Sand how to make when Nick had been busted in uh, Colorado, moving his lab from the East Coast to the West Coast. So Nick ended up making a lot of STP in San Francisco, many, many millions of doses. 
Why, why was it not as popular eventually as LSD, and why hasn't it uh, been the subject of research? Do you know? Well, although Owsley was initially really enthusiastic about it as a psychedelic, it turned out to not be that good a psychedelic. For one thing, it was very, very long-asking, so that the experience tended to last much longer than the LSD experience. Um, it wasn't as... It, it, I mean, it's, it's really hard. To, you know, it's, it's, these experiences are pretty ineffable, but um, it wasn't as... Um, entheogenic. It didn't tend to lead to religious experiences as reliably as LSD did. It didn't open your heart as much. It had more of a hard edge to it. Um, most of the mescaline analogs had an amphetamine side chain, and they had some of the characteristics of amphetamines as well as some of the characteristics of mescaline. Um, and it turned out not to be a really happy combination. Um, so People on the street uh, ended up having bad experiences if they took too high a dose. If they took too low a dose, they were disappointed in the experience, and the drug eventually acquired a bad name. I'm going to interrupt for a second to say that it's, uh, we've got about uh, less than 10 minutes left. It's obvious that we're not going to be able to do this entire interview uh, in, one, uh, in one session. I'm going to invite both of you back so that we can continue because what you both have to offer is ex extremely important in the history of what's referred to as the psychedelic movement in the United States. And now that after 50 years of active suppression by the United States government, research is once again being allowed, and you heard me talk about some of it uh, prior to the beginning of our interview, we're going to see a lot more research coming down the pike. So I'm just letting you both know that we don't have to rush through here. We'll be coming back to continue in this. Uh, we'll make it a little series on the history of the psychedelic uh, medicine movement. So while this is going on now, we hear what's going on with Tim up north and what he is doing, and now he's connected with Nick Sand, and they're beginning to produce. Um, what's going on with you at that time, Michael Randall? We're looking for LSD wherever we can find it. It was kind of a hit-and-miss thing, and sometimes you would find things that were good in terms of um, having enough strength for it to be a, a transformative experience. I think that's one of the things that STP failed on. It, it was not um, particularly a transformative experience uh, like taking um, LSD is. LSD is the magic molecule, it really is. And uh, um, we, we think of it as a molecule or a sacrament, not a drug. And... Um, so we were real happy when we kind of uh, got turned on to Nick and Tim because here was some good, full-strength LSD that you could rely upon. And uh, we kept it that way. All of us did. Uh, Sunshine was something that you could count on. It was it was kind of branded, really, and, and it was people... People could take it with confidence and knew that it was pure acid and, and a strong enough dose to uh, reliably 
provide the experience of, of, of evolutionary experience of awakening. That's a very important thing for a street drug because one of the big problems everyone knows with street drugs is you don't know for sure what's in them the same way you hopefully do with a pharmaceutical. So what you're saying in effect is that you were, through through Tim Scully and Nick Sand, you had access to what could be considered a pharmaceutical-grade uh, chemical. Absolutely. We went on, I worked in, in laboratories with Nick and then later on with other people. And we made pure, clean, white, crystal LSD. Uh, they can't get any more pure than what we were doing. And um, we distributed it in a fair way uh, without making it uh, hard for people in terms of money. The first LSD that we ever got was, was so expensive that um, uh, many people just could not afford it, and that was another thing we didn't like. We wanted it to be really affordable, and uh, we did that. We made it in huge quantities, and we made it so that anyone could afford it. Uh, and it was pure. Those of you who are listening, we have time for possibly a call or two if you want to ask a question of Tim Scully or Michael Randall. The telephone number here is 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103. We're about to get into the 1970s, Tim Scully. What's happening in the early 1970s with you and Nick? Well, by 1970, um, I had been busted for my second Denver lab. Um, we had finished Nick and I had finished our work together in Windsor, which was from um, December 68 through the spring of 1969, where we made about 1.3 kilos of LSD, which was mostly tableted as orange sunshine. So that was the first sunshine that the Brotherhood distributed. Um, and right after I finished my work in Windsor in 69, in the spring, I was busted for the lab I'd had in Denver the previous year. Um, so then I was commuting to court through early 1970, and through, for the next couple of years, I was commuting to Denver to go to court. Um, meanwhile, a fellow named Ron Stark appeared on the scene, and uh, he was introduced to me through Billy Hitchcock, because he had a connection through Millbrook. And he brought about a pound of LSD with him as a calling card. And he said that he had European labs where he could make unlimited amounts of LSD, and he wanted distribution for it in the United States. And I thought, wow, this is wonderful. I'd be off the hook. I don't have to run another lab. I can just hook this guy up with the Brotherhood, and the world will still get turned on. Um, because I was you know, in, in deeply in the gears of the legal system and uh, facing a 56-year possible prison sentence. Uh, so setting up another lab wasn't what I really wanted to do at that point. Can everybody hear? We're running into some technical problems that are pretty serious here. Can you hear me? I hear you just fine. I hear the problem, so too. You can hear that going out over the air. Yeah, it's static. I don't so you're starting to phase out in the early 70s, Tim Scully, is that correct? Well, yeah, what happened is that 
Ron Stark's acid turned out not to be really pure, so um, Nick and I agreed with the Brotherhood that it should be purified before it's distributed, and Ron talked me into setting up a purification and tableting facility for him. I went off to get a tablet machine from our connection in Chicago, whose name was Joe, which has uh, always been amusing to me. Um, Joe delivered a tablet machine to me, complete with carloads of federal agents following me. For most of the years that I'd been making LSD, I'd been under intermittent surveillance by federal agents, and I'd, up until then, I'd been able to lose them. So I'd always been able, to, you know, I'd been able to recognize that I was being followed, been able to lose them before I went to do anything important. But um, this time, I wasn't able to lose them. And um, that really scared me, that they, they'd improved their skills so much that they were better than I was. So the tablet machine ended up having to get sold to a candy company. I went back to the purification facility, tried to finish up the purification, but accidentally got a huge dose of LSD and had a really bad trip where I was seeing federal agents coming out of the trees. And uh, I decided that, okay, I really can't do any more of this. I've got to pass it on. And I passed the torch on to Michael and the Brotherhood. And I said, you, you have to take over. I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. We've got about two minutes left. You just got the torch passed to you, Michael. And we're not going to finish the whole thing, but you can tell us a little bit about what happened at that point. Well, we also, <clears throat> Timothy was in jail. We did a uh, benefit for him at the Village Gate in uh, New York. We had Jimi Hendrix play. We all took acid together. Um, it was a Village Gate's a small venue, and it was there that I met Ron Stark. And um, then a whole new dimension began because, in fact, he did have facilities or a possibility of facilities in Europe and uh, that's exactly what happened we went to Europe and made a lot of LSD really a lot of LSD there I'm going to stop you right there that's going to be it's sort of like a cliffhanger for our next program we're going to hear more about what happened with Michael Randall in Europe and what he means by a lot but for now we're going to have to conclude this program of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. So thank you. Thank you both, Tim Scully. Thank you, Michael Randall, for providing us the beginning of the history of the psychedelic movement in the United States. I know you're all going to want to listen in when we come in with Chapter 2 with Tim and, and uh, Michael, assuming, I hope I'm not uh, overstepping my bounds, by uh, assuming that you both will join me again. And Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my friend Mike DeLora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth working hard for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah.